Welcome to Relay Chain, a podcast produced by Parity Technologies, where we discuss all things substrates, polka dots, and Web3. Patrick and Amber, welcome to Relay Chain. Uh, we're here to talk about Clover, and you guys are mostly like a, a DevOps company, right? I would say uh, the thing we're working on right now is is uh, very DevOps. Yes. Yeah, it's difficult to present a kind of larger idea uh, to folks, and you can really only build one, kind of one thing at a time. So I think it, when we talk about uh, tools that are missing from the this space, whether you're talking about the decentralized web or blockchain specifically, uh, right now it's certainly developer tooling and usability. Um, we're trying to cross uh, cross verticals from uh, the public side and public chains across enterprise. And then we talk about connecting people to applications and discoverability and building enterprise applications. And it gets very, very massive, very fast. So uh, it's a lot easier to simply say, yeah, it's a it's a DevOps tool. <laughs> uh, you guys had a really awesome talk at Trail of Bits where you talked about how like crypto advances are only really useful if people have like an easy way to use them. And I'm totally shilling this talk. It was really good. Oh, that was at Empire Hacking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was part of a Trail of Bits yeah, program. Yeah, they sponsor. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, like your mission is really like to find the best tools and like connect them to the application developer so they don't really have to deal with blockchain. And like ideally, the end user doesn't even know that he or she is using a blockchain. Um, so besides like this kind of massive gap in the space, what interested you or motivated you to work on this problem? Well, that talk came out of... Uh, one of Patrick's better rants that is recurring across several of our, our talks, including, I think, Web3. You probably did a, a good rendition of that uh, last year as well. You could talk about. But this idea, you know, we we both have dealt with um, security kind of community ethos of saying, why don't people think like us more? Why don't, why don't people know how to use these tools? We built something pure and wonderful. And like, my next tool is the most purest thing I've ever seen. Um, and then wondering why everyone else in the world isn't automatically converted. Uh, and that same kind of philosophy, I think, happens a lot in uh, the blockchain space as well. Probably not uh, least because there's a lot of crossover in talent and skill set and um, and people even at this point, which is great. But yeah, it's it can be very easy to think that um, because what you've created uh, works for you, that other people will see the workflow and the usability as the same way that you do, when really we're dealing with an extremely long tail of people that not only aren't interested in that um, or don't want to learn about it, and that's not because they're not good people or not because because they're not smart enough, but because they have other deep areas of expertise that we don't know about. And so we can't really be subject to um, our own blind spots. Uh, so we need to build tools that are super simple and that um, can have a much wider reach. If, if you look at the, the whole blockchain space right now, what people have been working on is primarily protocol work. And that's obviously very fundamental and important to get right. But the people who are interested in that are mainly other protocol developers and people who can appreciate white papers and stuff like that not people who are just looking to download an app and use it for something. And there's a huge space there. And uh, you know some of that is DevOps, but it's also just a lot of, um, I wouldn't say boring, but certainly a lot of different little pieces that have to be glued together. And you know one of the things we've discovered uh, in the last year is that there are probably five times as many things as what we uh, assumed on, at the outset, but 
what what we're working on now is is um, something that uh, hopefully the protocol developers will be able to plug into to get some of that for free. And that's another one of the things that's a little bit uh, frustrating about the space is that since everything is so economically incentivized toward their own tokens, there's a lot of work that could be repurposed uh, for other projects or could be a little more generic uh, or abstract, but isn't. And so we're trying to build something that's you know not completely abstract, but abstract enough that it's applicable to different projects. And so one of the first things that we supported out of the gate was Ethereum, uh, which includes Parity and Go Ethereum and uh, other Ethereum clients. And when you say supported, what do you mean? Like uh, that you can configure a node and like have a binary for that? Um, like what, is, what does support mean for you guys? Yeah, basically there's a, there's a config that maps to the different configs for the different Ethereum clients. And then there's the, obviously the Web3 API or Web3 RPC API, uh, which is not you know Web3, but the things that they do have in common, we uh, simply just bridged to that. And then the things they don't really have in common, we have a few things where we have stopped out an API to try to remove that difference. Yeah, so I think like a lot of things that we value in the space as like protocol developers, uh, like that something's open source and you can go build it yourself. A lot of people actually want a black box. Like we kind of criticize closed source software or Windows or whatever because you can't go see the code. But most people just, they want like, this is the API. Like I want to be able to call these functions or do these things. And it seems like what you guys are building is like, you can turn this into a black box, but you can also go see what's in it if you really want to. You just don't have to. It just makes it a lot easier to work with it. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, the, because there are so many parts involved, like one example is Ethereum clients are just uh, static binaries in most cases. And even though they're static binaries and those are easy to deploy, there's a lot of work that can go into making it very easy for somebody to self-run a binary if they do not know a terminal or you know have a VPS somewhere. And it's very easy to get trapped in the process of building something for that where, where it's just a hundred times easier to centralize a primary aspect of it uh, because then you can just take care of that. It's much more difficult if you want the whole thing to be decentralized. And so that's uh, a large part of that work is making that protocol developers able to say, here's a config for my project and then have that work taken care of in a way where Clover is not suddenly a centralized party that's gatekeeping access to anything. And that does look like a black box for the user, but it isn't for the protocol developers who want to know, you know, what is this stuff that's running my application. Yeah, there's a big difference between saying, oh, this is a one-click install for someone who wants to run an application that pops up a GUI for them, and that's the only thing they see, but they've actually silently and seamlessly deployed some infrastructure behind the scenes that they truly have no intention of ever touching or updating or maintaining themselves. And something that's a a one-click deploy for someone that was trying to get to the point where they have a development environment where they can build something. Those are two very different things. And right now, we're starting to see more projects that are saying, oh, one-click install, one-click deploy, and then there's a 19-minute how-to video on how to use your one-click tool. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the comments on one of these YouTube videos is just like, well, that was a lot more than one click, <laughs> you know, um, which is true. It's, it's very hard because you have to make choices for people to remove those clicks, and that can mean a reduction in their power, their agency, their choice, and you don't want to do that. But at the same time, 99% of people don't change defaults. So how do you find that kind of balance and expose 
the underlying power to the people when they're looking for it, but make sure that the people that are not get a, a good experience that hasn't, say, made a choice that opted them into something that was, say, undermining their privacy or, or something. You gave me a thought that I'm having trouble articulating, but giving people the tools that if they really want to tweak the individual settings, they can, but still the default settings on these tools might be better than what they have now. And so we shouldn't stop them from using the default settings of these new tools just because they can't go through all of the little tweaks. Yeah, and even in the the developer space, if you when you go to change some of the configuration settings um, now on where someone has built an interface to do so, uh, they'll have a field um, that says you know uh, like coin or something, and there's no description, and you hover over it, and the tooltip is like coin. Like, what am I supposed to put in this field? So uh, it's it's not even fair to do to something like that to your users. You know, we need to take time to not only have quality documentation and have things that run seamlessly, um, but where when you are ex exploring what happens if I change this setting, uh, you don't want people to be scared because then again, they won't change a setting that they're afraid is going to break their entire install. Uh, and that takes that takes work and it takes thinking like your user. Um, and that's all just part of that kind of, you know, user-centered design process. Right. And that's one way in which we're not really a DevOps company because uh, DevOps is not some holy grail or something like the, the state of the art in DevOps is something that is configurable via environment variables, like 12-factor apps. That's pretty much the pinnacle of DevOps. And if you don't know what the environment variables do, you're, you're stuck. And that invariably means reading a bunch of documentation and experimenting and you know, getting feedback of whether this worked or not. And then when it finally works, you assume that everything's fine. And that's not really a great user experience for somebody who doesn't have, that's kind of like the Gentoo Linux of deploying binaries uh, of today. So yeah, there's a lot of work there to make that more than just a bunch of key value maps of strings. Yeah, I'd say one more thing on this is that even protocol developers probably have not run their own copper wiring for their house, but you expect the lights to turn on when you flip the switch, right? So once something is sufficiently distributed and commoditized, we just assume that it's always there and is this kind of underlying fabric that we just use. But at the same time, there's this whole resurgence of the maker movement where people wanted to go and learn how to solder. And if you are um, so lucky as to not be exposed to many blue collar jobs, you think it's super cool to be part of the maker community and learn how to solder. But that's also like an entire vocational career. And there are still people who do that. So I, I think that as um, blockchain technology and a lot of these different protocols that we're developing now become much more ubiquitous, uh, it'll become ever more novel to interface with them so directly. We'll see more and more and more types of abstractions. And there will always be a subset of people that are just really interested in getting under the hood, some of whom that will be part of their job, some of whom it will be just a wonderful part of their hobby. And someday it'll be like, we really need a ham radio operator in case everything else goes down and you're very valuable to society because we don't even know how this works anymore. But we're not there yet. Far from it, but hopefully uh, you guys are laying the, the steps to get there. Hopefully. <laughs> uh, so at the, the Web3 Summit last year, uh, Patrick, you presented and you had this slide where you talked about four factors that kind of govern this uh, development and it was politics, business models, developer experience, and end user experience. Uh, so if we could just talk about like a little bit of each of those and how you see them. Um, so like if we start with politics, a lot of with like the Web3 or what you call Weber Next, that's this idea that like the internet is its own jurisdiction. So it's not just, you know, right now it's kind of like, well, the EU has its own laws, the US has its own laws, China has its own laws, and 
this Web3 has its own jurisdiction? And how that, do you that see that? That would be the JP Barlow interpretation of the internet. Yes. Yeah, sure. Um, no, that is that is the utopian idealistic dream of what the internet could be. Uh, in practice, that's not really what it looks like. Uh, I mean, fundamentally, the internet is routed at a packet level by machines that are controlled by nation states. And those nation states make decisions. And increasingly in the last decade or two, there's been uh, a return to something like the 90s crypto wars where people in different geographical regions had their own cryptography and they told each other to only use you know, their region's crypto and don't give anybody else it. Kind of seeing the same thing with the internet now, it's just much more soft and subtle. Uh, it's just apps that only work in certain places and or are censored in certain places and invariably leads to different information pockets. So I, I, I hope there can be something like a, um, a Web3 without borders, but certainly the, the internet as a whole is not really going in that direction. Um, so I guess it's kind of up to us to, to try to, to prevent some of those tendencies. Yeah, and it's, it's possible to reach across these borders and jurisdictions like never before to interface with people or access information or now to engage in commerce directly. But that doesn't abdicate you from the local laws where you live and someone can still come to your house physically and remove you for having done something in cyberspace. So we have to be careful when we think about what you can do and what is possible, especially in censorship-resistant systems and what the repercussions are if it is known uh, what you have done. In a similar way to the free speech argument of you might be able to say whatever you want, but that doesn't exempt you from consequences for what you have said. Sure. So how do you see these things interfacing? Like, yeah, that's certainly not the internet that we have now, but if some of the tools are to push it in that direction where the internet does have some of its own governance that's ungovernable by a law that's on a piece of paper, how do you see that playing out and what protections need to be in place kind of on both sides? Are we specifically talking about on-chain governance or are we simply talking about governance of digital systems in general here? In general. <laughs> in general. Um, I think it's very um, interesting and hopefully promising to be able to have better records of what people intended to happen uh, and to be able to better arbitrate and have better uh, evidence or underlying information in order to prove or disprove that something happened. Uh, whether we're talking about logs or zero-knowledge attestations, either side of that. But at the same time, the dispute resolution framework systems that we use in the kind of traditional legal system are fuzzy intentionally to allow for differing interpretations and the evolution, especially of social interpretation, of what these things should mean. And we redefine them over time. Uh, so there's a, a very different implication when we talk about something that is deterministic and should always deliver the exact same result every time and something that is intentionally fuzzy so that it grows and changes with us. And the interface between those two things, let alone the physical enforcement of an action, maybe not just to say removing your coins, but like we're going to remove you, you know, enforcing that is a very different thing. And at the end of the day, uh, where people are talking about, oh, we're going to put our land titles, you know, on the blockchain or something, you know, the person who owns the land right now uh, is still the person who can put a tank on your property and say, I own this land. Uh, so I don't see how a digital record that something should have been different abdicates us from the physical enforcement of that system. Was that really dystopian and sad? <laughs> Sorry. A, a little bit, but it's something that I think we should probably talk about more and take more seriously. Yeah, I think right, right now that the state that we're at is these 
these kinds of technologies kind of make things or have the potential to make things more robust in the cases where simply incompetence and systems that don't function well would have allowed for certain problems to arise in the past, like something like land ownership that prevents possibly low-level corruption and, and low-level power. But, or trickiness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and that kind of fuzziness, yeah. There's a um, certain sense of naivete that we're just going to build a technology, and as long as it's like formal methodsy enough, then the governments of the world are just going to listen to the math. That's not really historically how it's worked out. Like Amber said, a tank is going to roll onto your yard, and then you're hiding from bullets. That's not really something a blockchain can um, prevent. Yeah, I think this kind of goes with the cliche, like with great power comes great responsibility. And these tools give individuals a lot of power. And if you're not really aware of the power that you have with these tools, there are other people with physical power and you need to be cognizant of that. I mean, it does offer the opportunity, though, definitely to step outside of the confines of the, the current system and do something different, whether that's hoarding tokens that you believe will have value under some future circumstance or keeping records for yourself or even just publishing a hash of something that you want to disclose and prove really happened later. All of those things have value. We just need to be realistic about under what circumstances and to what end. So if we move away from dystopia, um, something I, I believe... I, I think from, we were just talking about current reality, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, towards something I think you're more optimistic about, business models. And I think you've said in some, some talks that you've seen some promising non-surveillance models. What kind of progress do you see and any good ideas? Well, it's totally possible to build technical tools or non-technical tools that have a business model or they make money without being driven by surveillance. Before the last 15 years, I would say all of our business models were kind of that way. Uh, I mean, all of the software that was sold that was, you know, besides the spyware that installed itself on your system in the 90s from Kazaa or whatever, um, it was totally feasible to purchase and run software without it being subsidized by advertising or being spyware dependent. So, we're seeing people um, postulate different kinds of just regular subscription models or opting into um, tiered kind of models where different access to different information um, might have different pricing levels. But what, what we talk about there is consensual data assignment or sharing and the confidentiality of said data. And that's a different conversation than when we just talk about straight up privacy, what I have, no one else should be able to see. And right now, I feel like there's a bit of a conflation in the public discourse about trying to keep everything that you have private. Like, I'm, this will only be on some local chip that I have, and I'm never going to send this data anywhere. And that is a, a really complex. There's not really a lot of real applications that can make use of that, bring the application to the data perform a bunch of operations over encrypted data, send kind of results back. That's not really happening in production right now. So what is more viable near-term kind of business models are minimal data sharing and uh, using that data in a responsible way, having better, more clear legal covenants with your customer base, being more transparent about how that data is used, and then interfacing with kind of the changing regulatory scheme about what you do uh, with your, your customer's data, the third-party data brokering, et cetera. One thing I think is really interesting is ad tech, which obviously is the kind of the frontier of surveillance capitalism because it is about data sharing and data sharing about everybody and as much data as you could possibly gather. And the U.S. in particular has 
no particular enforcement of how that is done, and all the companies just share all the data with each other. Uh, but in the last 10 years or so, it's become difficult for CEOs and boards to excuse doing this so rampantly because they can actually be fired now and be held accountable. Like the, I think the famous example of, of when this started was when the Target CEO was uh, stepped down because of a data breach. And before then, data breaches were a chief security officer thing. You can let them go, let the CIO go, but the CEO, they were handling bigger things and uh, you know they weren't really accountable for that. And that totally changed in the last decade or so. So it's, it's in the, the corporation's interest to not have that risk. And at the same time, cryptography has received this you know, thunder strike of funding from, from blockchain-related efforts, which has led to a lot of advancements in um, multi-party compute. For example, it's now possible to run algorithms on different computers that can compute results that give the CEO what they needed to sell more product or whatever it is, but without collecting, you know, this person prefers that movie or whatever. And uh, it's interesting that all these things are happening at the same time, and blockchain or consensus technology is just a way uh, if you think about it, to coordinate those kinds of tasks. And I think there's a lot of business models there that have yet to be realized, but they're very applicable. Yeah, and this sounds like going on what you said, Amber. People don't want to keep everything secret. It's nice to turn on your phone and tell you like what the weather is, where you are today. It's like It's nice that somebody knows that and can give you information that's pertinent to you. The problem is more like how it gets used after that. It's not just yep. like the first person you give it to, it's who they give it to. That's one of the interesting things that GDPR did is, is make you as a company have to be more explicit about who you then give the data to, uh, because that is the most opaque thing. And uh, especially in U.S. ad tech, it's uh, very um, incestuous, for lack of a better word. I mean, they just give the data to everybody else, and then they give it to everybody else. So inevitably, everybody has all the same data. Now, at least companies in Europe have to, or that have customers in Europe have to be explicit about who the next people in the, in the chain is. Do you think it's useful or healthy to enforce this in geo like political ways versus protocol ways? Or do you think we should be more focused on protocol development to just prevent this from happening in the first place? I mean, I'd like to see DRM software that actually worked ever. So once the data has left you, the data is generally not able to be clawed back. Again, to what Patrick was saying, there are ways to work around that now with some of the different advances in multi-party compute and other things. But I th think GDPR was an interesting start, but definitely postulated, as always, the technology regulation is backwards looking. They're just trying to catch up with the idea of a cloud where all the data in the world, you can pull something off the internet by contacting a small number of companies. And that is radically changing. Um, of course, it never was actually true in practice because you could mirror anything. But the more uh, decentralized, again, for lack of a better word, uh, the internet is, then that regulation like that really um, falls apart very quickly. So it would be great to have other sorts of enforcement or even location mechanisms or intellectual property or compensation. You have to trust the person on the other end of the wire or you simply can't use an application. Data sharing as a technical problem is incredibly difficult because, you, I mean, how are you going to prevent somebody from copying it? Yeah. So if we move on to developer experience, the first question I have is like, which developer? Because I know like <laughs> in, in my experience from like previously in engineering and now I'm at Parity, but like protocol development versus application development is very different. So like 
kind of who are you looking looking at here as like the developer you're targeting? And I would say there's another kind of developer, and that is the developer who so far has not cared about blockchain because they think it's a bunch of hype and they don't really understand what the what the properties are that you could get and how it, those are applicable in the kinds of things that they're building. There's a huge market there for people who so far have been uninterested. I think that's much less in the last several years, and it helps to come out of kind of blockchain winter, having tools that do more things rather than just a bunch of uh, white papers and uh, people being very uh, excited about stuff. But the blockchain space, I still think, has this uh, very money and hype-driven thing that scares a lot of developers away. And so I think possibly the most important developer experience is the one where you kind of decompose some of these huge things that have been built into little building blocks that a regular developer can understand. So for example, consensus. If the only problem you have is you have to coordinate some basic algorithm between a bunch of servers and you want to have a system where one malicious server can't corrupt the whole thing, why, why isn't that a, a library rather than something that is built into these large ecosystems where now you have to adopt a coin and pay with stuff? Of course, uh, crypto economic incentives are important, but I think there's a huge amount of work to just kind of uh, make you know, decouple these abstractions from all the, the different projects. And like Tendermint is one example, I think, of um, Tendermint and Polkadot uh, are two examples of projects that have come or are coming quite close to being um, these kind of general purpose tools that you could pick up. IPFS is another one. Yeah, we've, at least like in Substrate and Polkadot, we've completely separated like consensus from tokens. Actually, we've kind of split consensus into like block production and finality and like separate modules. And like, Neither of them even know about tokens. It's completely separate. Yep. Um, and so how do you handle like protocol shuffles, like Tendermint, Polkadot, Ethereum? These protocols keep changing. And so how do you build libraries and tools that can give higher level developers the same APIs that they want uh, without having to worry about, okay, what's the next consensus thing that's going to come along? Yeah, I mean, great, great question. I mean, so far, the way that we've been doing it is... Uh, treating the underlying protocols as key value stores plus plus. So using the properties that we're sure will will stick around. Um, but it's a great question. I don't, I don't have the answer to it. Like, how do you how do you make something that withstands uh, major protocol changes? You, you can't really. And um, yeah, I mean, that's that's true for everything, right? We, it's a, just a matter of time until we can uh, we have something where major protocol changes aren't necessary. It's, it's also a challenge for us in that we've said we are quote-unquote blockchain agnostic for whatever that means. But what, what that means is that we're not just part of a single community that's hoping for the success of one single project or one single token, but rather are focusing on higher order goal of helping people be able to do something that they can't do right now. And whatever thing it is that helps them get that there, it is useful for us to support. So early on, that means keeping up with a relatively small number of leaders, but it also means constantly watching some of these emerging projects that don't necessarily have the technical baggage and have learned from seeing the other kind of leader projects, you know, and that come to disrupt. And then making sure that what we have, it's not dependent on close 
over to build the thing for for everybody to interface with, that we can make something that's extensible and that other people can onboard themselves and that there's not a gatekeeping system. Uh, and that, that means that if this becomes the de facto way to say deploy or make something accessible, that teams will bake that into their initial roadmap and they'll help keep up with us and help us scale in a way that we couldn't do if it was just based on our own kind of relationships and partnerships or a perception of where the market is going. Yeah. Um, so for the final end user, how do you view this technology compared to Web2 technology? Is it what are the things that will be inherently better for the user? And then what are some of the challenges with decentralized tech in creating a good user experience? I think that when we look at people that are coming onto the internet or are growing up on the internet these days, they are different. Uh, they use technology differently than prior generations. And so we are always... Um, I don't mean we, us, I mean all of us collectively have to be designing for both um, people at large for whom technology is always going to be foreign to them because they are older than us and also people that are younger than us that are so in indoctrinated that they see the internet as the light switch and they weren't here when it came on and they, they have this idea of personal branding and selling a product that is themselves or from their Instagram feed, you know, that's not something that was around when even I was a kid. And so thinking about not just the sharing economy, but the gig economy, but this coming very personal economy, I think it's an amazing opportunity for us to decompose the things that make a business into something that an individual who does not have an MBA is able to create and run and uh, the accounting is abstracted for them. The, the legal entity is abstracted for them. The payments processing, merchant services, um, you know, somebody selling soaps they made at home is not like, oh, let me figure out who my merchant payment processing treasury services <laughs> solution is, right? So how can we um, make that so micro and so um, abstracted for them that they focus on what it is that they're good at and the rest kind of flows behind it? And when that is seamless to them and they can focus on the cool thing they want to deliver to the world and they can do it peer to peer with somebody who also is like, hey, I wanted that thing. And I could discover that thing that you're selling without having to go to the one like world store that we now have, the, the singular centralized storefront of everything in the future, but rather discover it like I was walking through somebody's neighborhood and seeing their farmer's market kind of shops. That is when we'll have like an amazing kind of integration of the this um, local marketplace that thinks like a global digitized marketplace. And so building the tools to enable that, I think is really, really promising and exciting. I'm reminded of one of my favorite Twitter profiles, John Backus. Uh, he constantly is reminding people that uh, decentralization did not start with blockchain. It didn't start with Web3 or any of these things. And in fact, many people have tried and without coins and failed in the past. And uh, of course, Linux and, and Unix has its own mantra of the cathedral versus the bazaar. Become, it's very easy, but there's... Um, a lot of inefficiencies in the cathedral, but the bazaar kind of uh, decentralizes things and people build their own tools and pick the tools that they want to use for themselves. But um, the problem that I think this space has that it does not have an answer to yet is, like Amber said, the people building their personal brands. How do you build something where, you know, e even with the hurdle of having to now use, uh, having transaction costs, how do you build something where somebody can build their personal brand on it. And if you look at every crypto project, they don't know either because they're using Medium to host their blogs. So 
before we solve that problem, there's just not going to be that many of those that that it's um, a super important. But that's the piece of the protocol work stuff that's not. Um, if I were to base it on John Backus's uh, sober thoughts, uh, it is something that may never be solved, like the identity problem. It's not like we just need to put enough minds on it for a long enough time. I mean, that may be just not possible. It's the difficulty, though, with saying, talking about the internet or the web or next or web three, and then saying, who is your user, is that your user is everybody. And so you can take this small slice and say, how could we make this different for kids who are trying to sell something on Instagram? And that's a lot of people, and you could definitely build a successful business doing that. But it's one very, very small slice of a global population. So if you're looking at the half of the human population coming online in the emerging economies over the next 10 years, they have different needs. So figuring out how those same tools can solve different purposes without us having to build completely separate tooling that doesn't speak with um, itself, that's a challenge. And then we move to small business that has a different challenge from startups that are trying to scale quickly or from enterprise that has legacy infrastructure. So trying to build something that works for absolutely everybody probably only happens when you talk about something as tiny and as small as like network communication protocol. Right. But when we talk about what solves a problem for an end user, it is a much more full fledged kind of vertical stack of things. So how can we compose things together so that you can solve either end of that spectrum? I think we'll have as robust a toolkit as you do right now when you go out to build a web app and, you know, you can look at the evolution of everything of how those kind of stacks have evolved. But we're now seeing this kind of convergence that you might pick up the same tool to solve your own problem at home as, as you would in a, a larger business and businesses in order to stay nimble and agile are importing these tools and importing developers who um, ha don't have a 30-year history of working uh, in Java exclusively, for example, right? Uh, so it's, it's changing very quickly. And I can only imagine that that will continue to um, decompose more. Yeah. So speaking of like developing these tools, Amber, you said something that I really liked. You said decentralization is not a network topology. It's an ongoing process. And did I say that? That sounds great. You did say that. Cool. Okay. Um, <laughs> I can find the, the YouTube link for you <laughs> if you want to have the source. Um, I believe you. Like, So how do you think about this process compared to maybe other software development or just general engineering processes? In that specific instance, what we're talking about is that in this arena, people get very uh, attached to this idea of decentralization does equal your network topology, right? It's it's where are the nodes, who's running these things. But there's so many more inputs. This was Patrick and I gave a talk at DevCon, um, I think last year, that kind of tried to enumerate the many different layers of where you have these kind of soft power aggregation centers, even when we're talking about decentralized systems, let alone kind of everything else out in the world. Um, but everything from kind of who are your developer inputs, uh, who actually, of course, has maintainer access to your code. But when you have questions or are developing new features, who do you ask for input? How uh, diverse is your community that is giving you input? Do you only accept input via uh, GitHub pull requests, right? That's even limiting, right? So what can you do to have the broadest base, the widest funnel? And then, you know, if we all decide that there's only a single privacy solution and it's a hardware chip from 
from a corporation that is incentivizing or subsidizing people to test it, do we all end up using the same thing? And again, now we're all dependent uh, on, on one thing that might have a, a vulnerability that's discovered later. Um, so decentralization allows you to uh, inoculate yourself against kind of failures of any one part of the system. And so at, at each step, we simply have to be asking ourselves, who is it that we are becoming dependent on here? And I don't believe that it has to be um, that, that full decentralization, whatever that means and whatever capacity is a goal or necessarily a good thing. And it certainly slows things down. It slows down consensus, not of your, just of your network, but of figuring out what do we do here? Because if you're asking more people and taking in more opinions and um, evaluating a wider number of solutions, then it, it takes longer to figure out how to move forward. But hopefully uh, you end up with a more kind of robust and resilient system that can keep going in a variety of different types of adverse environments. You just need to determine whether or not the thing that you're attempting to build has the kind of threat model that it needs to run in such adverse environments. Because a lot of times we, there's so much over-engineering that it slows you down to the point where somebody else from behind that had a small team that solved one problem that does one thing in one sort of condition, they just rock it out ahead of you and all of a sudden get all of the market share. <laughs> yeah, so for privacy systems, privacy often gets kind of framed at the edges, either like you shouldn't have any expectation of privacy or you should have expectation of complete privacy. And so how do you see the evolution of privacy tech? And I know you've talked about like some of the tooling before, but how do you see that evolving now? People are more and more interested in understanding privacy tooling, but they are still reticent to use tools that are specifically geared at quote unquote solving privacy problems. Most people are not going to run their internet over Tor. Most people are not, they don't, most people don't even use a password manager, even though it's a very simple kind of thing to use to make yourself more secure. So the more that we can do to make people not have to go out and, and seek privacy tools, but rather have them seamlessly integrated into the applications that they use, the better off we are. That's much easier said than done. And that goes back to what Patrick was saying earlier about making security tooling or privacy tooling um, easy for developers to access and use and very good quality tools simpler to interface with. One, one of my favorite examples is one that we gave in, in one of the talks that you referred to is uh, the question, which thing is more important, uh, Signal, the private messenger, or the fact that WhatsApp adopted the, the double ratchet, the same kind of double ratchet scheme? And there is not really a simple answer to that. They're both uh, very important. But if you just look at the number of users that benefit from either one, there's a billion users of WhatsApp versus five million, oh, it, five million for, for Signal. So... Everything is relative in that sense, and, and oftentimes the purest things have the fewest users. And so a lot of the, the work that's not so fun is balancing out all these impurities and trying to select impurities that are not going to hurt people. And so there's no simple answer to what it means to kind of have privacy, but certainly uh, it's possible to, um, to do something that prevents something like dragnet surveillance in popular applications. Yeah, as we, it is important to look at though, like what teams are creating these things and to understand where software is coming from. Um, even when we talk about the WhatsApp to Signal kind of comparison, we know that the team behind Signal is committed to, um, you know, 
privacy as a product, although they're selling it as not even ephemeral messaging anymore. They're selling it under a totally different kind of marketing purview, but that they've made technical decisions that will continue to kind of support uh, a specific type of user. In the WhatsApp case, you know, it's a, it's a smaller, um, a, a larger uh, user base, but with a smaller thing that makes it a private messenger. And then they've made business decisions by integrating with, say, Facebook and Instagram that now have put them in the position of being part of this whirlwind of what's happening with um, privacy at Facebook and, say, monetizing an, an originally, you know, end-to-end -end encrypted product and how does that fit into the LibraCoin or whatever that program is going to be. And so there's a lot of uncertainty there because the team and the philosophy behind it is, well, now larger, but also it's uh, more obfuscated kind of who's in charge and uh, whom they're serving. Yeah, I saw an interesting stat in Mary Meeker's internet report last week that people who care about privacy from 2014 to now actually decreased from 64 to 52%, but the amount of encrypted web traffic increased from like 50% to 90%. And so I think that shows like the tooling is, is working and people aren't really going to take the extra steps to do something to protect their privacy, but developers can put these things in the infrastructure. Yeah, and I think that's one of the uh, most self-defeating kind of recurring arguments in this space is this notion that technologists are supposed to be neutral and that if we just build these governance solutions, then people are going to come along of all different shapes and sizes uh, and, and we're going to make these decisions totally democratically. And uh, oftentimes the, the people saying that are, are people with very sensible opinions that could make good choices on behalf of other users, but they defer that responsibility out of you know, a sense of it not being right for them to make those decisions. But somebody else is going to come along who is not as... Uh, Altruistic. <laughs> I was looking for a, who is Pragmatic. more evil than that. <laughs> and they're going to make the choices for you. So, yeah, I um, I kind of like the idea of, of Linux as uh, or open source in general of these kind of distributed or decentralized dictatorships of where each project has a a smallish number of people and they all make decisions about how their project should work. And if you're unhappy with it, then you can take your own small team and fork it and make another thing. But that's possible. And we've, I mean, it's obvious that it's possible to compile these into things, Linux distributions that work on a massive scale and that have commercial value. But uh, we're kind of in the like early Linux stage of Web3 where people are still out building all these uh, things, but there, there's nothing equivalent to a Linux distribution and certainly not many of them that people can like jump between and have a common language for that. Yeah, and a lot of that comes down to defaults, I think. Like right now, some of those people who do care about privacy might not have the technical know-how to protect themselves. And so the default is no privacy, but like if we can build the tools, it becomes up to you to opt out. Like if you don't want yeah. privacy, then use something that doesn't protect your privacy. I think it's incredibly important for the, the people writing the software to enable those things and then make them opt out, yeah, instead of opt-in. Uh, I want to turn away from Clover and current tech and a little bit more towards like career advice type things. You guys both came from JP Morgan, and I think something you did that's really cool is that you started this quorum program from inside. It was kind of like starting a, a business from within a very large business, and I've worked in like a very big organization before, or like big corporation, and then tried to go out on my own and like just didn't really have the the know-how and I got completely lost. So like with 
blockchain growing and people hiring, like for people that end up in a big corporation that's interested in this, how can they stay entrepreneurial and creative and develop new things or, or just stay, um, I think a lot of it is like being aware of like seeing the opportunity, but like what are some tips you have for seeing that? Well, I had not worked in startups previously by choice because I actually prefer the um, legal protections of working in a large organization <laughs> that has a functioning HR department. Patrick has a different experience, <laughs> but I think that it's great for people uh, coming out of school to go work in a larger institution uh, so that they can understand the things that it takes to make a business run. And this has nothing to do with JP Morgan or um, that specific program, um, but understanding the different types of job functions and roles and how they come together in a large place, um, you see a lot more than the kind of bare bones things that can come together in a startup that just so happen to maybe sometimes get a product out to production. But in a well-oiled machine, you can understand how legal can interface with uh, different types of billing systems and business development and how sales might be different than biz dev and might be different than internal product management and how a product manager is not a project manager and what like a very large kind of technical team can come together to do. And so um, then you can kind of do something on a, a small scale, I guess, which isn't to say, um, I think what we had an opportunity to do at JP was a little different in that we they did create an actual kind of, it felt like an internal startup incubator kind of new product development team. And the goal of that was to create a place where um, things could kind of spin out and become their own entities. Uh, it just so happened that um, Patrick and I were aligned in the types of problems that we wanted to solve. And I don't think that had so much to do with um, Quorum or the team that we were working on. I probably could have bumped into him in the accounting department and we still would have wanted to work together on solving different types of problems. I, I probably wouldn't be in the accounting department, but... Um... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it, working at a large corporation can be fun, but uh, at least for me, I didn't say it was fun. I just said it, it was exposure to well, a lot I of found detail. It, <laughs> I, I found it. Uh, I did find it fun, but only after applying kind of a systems thinking hat to large organizations, like all the processes that Amber just described. If you are just kind of tired, if you tire easily of these kind of human processes and how much communication overhead there is in a large corporation. Then something as simple as saying, oh, uh, we don't have a GitHub account. We need to open one. If you're just thinking technically, it's like, just go do it. Like, it's not that hard. You click a button, you type in an email and a, and a name, and then it's done. In a large organization... Who's email? What's the recovery if that person leaves? Right, What's our so CLA for this project? In a large <laughs> corporation, that will, that will take many months. Yep. And there's... Uh, there are a lot of things that go on in those many month and months and there are a lot of problems and a lot of things we have to do for many different reasons. And if you can be excited about understanding those dynamics, then uh, it can be fun. But um, What's the reputational yeah. exposure of open sourcing a project that then becomes unsupported? What happens if we get a pull request from a competitor? What happens if we get a pull request from another highly regulated entity like a central bank? Um, you know, there is a lot to, th to think about, not to go too far off topic, but there's a lot of other great organizations like Finos that we also work with that help in the financial industry to help 
large entities think about open source and how to do that. But I see them kind of running the race that I kind of had to do by myself early on and a lot of the open sourcing work that now uh, many banks are kind of like there's this momentum building behind it. And so I think now is actually a really great time to go be working, especially in the larger um, financials on uh, these kind of cool innovation programs, whether it's blockchain or I don't know, cognitive or whatever, like the hotness is this week. But there's so much funding because they all realize that they have to transform, that you can learn a lot there. And then you can take that kind of learning and go out and start a, a tiny company where suddenly, yeah, it does suck to not be able to travel business class anymore, but you have the autonomy to not need to ask seven levels of operating committees, like, can I buy this stapler? And so there's there's a value on both sides of the fence. Yeah, I've never worked in a financial company, but I, I agree with you from like my history that like a lot of startups are very optimistic, which is, is great, but then sometimes you're like, oh, we have this idea, let's just try it and see if it works. And if you come from a bigger institution that maybe works in like mission critical systems, the attitude is very much like, okay, you have this idea, how could it possibly go wrong? Mm -hmm. And that's a very healthy way to think, especially when we're talking about these systems that, like you said earlier, like the user is everybody. And so you have to think about like, what happens if X, Y, Z, and have like a plan for this and like prevent it if it's actually like a, a bad consequence. Yeah, the, the mission critical thing, it's, a, it's probably exactly what you were about to say. The, it's a good comparison to kind of having security people on your team early um, or being security people. But that, that thinking uh, of how could this go wrong as opposed to always imagining that the happy path is where you're going, that is probably the most important part of uh, systems design, in, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, and large organizations are, are filled with people who have concerns about things that might go wrong, especially <laughs> if it's their area of concern or responsibility. Uh, so yeah. Okay, final question. Somewhat cultural. There's a lot of uh, tribalism within the crypto community. Amber, you settled the hashtag crypto debate with uh, crypto Clytus. Uh, <laughs> what animal will unite the crypto community? What animal? Will, I mean, yeah, that's because hashtag crypto. Crypto means crypto Clytus, right? Um, Let's, that was actually something my four-year-old son pointed out in his dinosaur encyclopedia. Um, although, to be fair, he would point out if he were here that it is not a dinosaur, it is a marine reptile. Um, so what will unite us? I'm going to go with otters. Well, yeah, but otters is just the easy choice because otters are magic, but... Right. All right. We're QED. Gonna, <laughs> QED. We're going with otters. Okay. Amber and Patrick, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Relay Chain. We'd love to keep in touch. Follow us on Twitter at Relay Chain or email podcast at parity.io. Our team at Parity includes some of the leading peer-to-peer -peer networking developers, consensus algorithm inventors, blockchain innovators, and Rust developers. If you want to learn more about our work or want to work with us, visit our website at parity.io and sign up for our newsletter at parity.io newsletter. Thank you.